appeal to you, Lord. We look to you as the one with all the power and all the glory, with the ability to lead us away from temptation and to deliver us from the evil one in his power. Brother, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the wonders of what is true in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're looking at the next psalm in book three of the psalms, which is Psalm 77. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles there. Psalm 77, follow along as I read. And as I do so, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Silah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighting, lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? One of the things we've been doing this semester in our youth group is talking about discipleship and, and, and looking at the book of Mark specifically to understand, well, what does a disciple look like? What does it look like? What would it have looked like to have followed uh, Jesus, to have him call you and to be nurturing you? And there's a couple of things that we've noted because the idea is that how do we become a followers of Christ? What do we actually do? I mean, how do, how does it, what does it actually look like? And so as, as, we've, as we've been uncovering those things, we've noticed a couple of things. One, to follow Jesus would have, to, would to have observed that Jesus was very attentive to the Word of God. So we've been talking about our kids, you know, take the time to read your Bible every day. If it's just a little bit, and start, you know, with the book of Mark, if you don't know where to start. And just begin to be, immerse yourself in the Word of God, because that's what we saw Jesus is doing. Jesus was so versed in the Old Testament law that it came out of him when he would respond to questions 
or when he would be entered into the, when he came into the synagogue. It was so evident that his life was permeated with the understanding of Scripture. And that wasn't the only thing, of course. We see Jesus actively engaged in prayer. Uh, his habit was to go off in the morning and spend time with, in God alone in prayer. And his disciples would see this. And so we see it recorded on the pages of the Gospel, that as was his custom, he would rise early and go and spend time with the Lord in prayer. So those two activities we've been encouraging you know, our own youth group to do, to be regularly in the Word of God, to be regularly reading what the Bible has to say, that you become familiar with, with, uh, with what's there, with what God is revealing to us about this world and about our own lives, about Himself and about our relationship to Him. And also to spend time regularly in prayer. And of course that begs the question, well, how do we pray and what does prayer look like? And of course Jesus taught on prayer. We, we, we know when the disciples asked Him to teach them how to pray, He gave them the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is a great model prayer. We use it, in fact, to shape our whole worship service. If you may have noticed, we went through the whole Lord's Prayer uh, so far in the course of our time of worship. You know, the Lord's Prayer is a model in that it tells us, first of all, who are we praying to? What we're praying to, we don't call Him God or Mighty One, although He is those things. We address Him as Father. And not just my Father, but our Father realizing that he's assembled us together as a family. And as we pray to him, we, we, the, the model prayer shows us that not only to whom we pray, but what ought to be our ultimate aim when we pray. And our ultimate aim when we pray is to pray that God's name would be hallowed among all the earth. Right? Hallowed be your name, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And of course acknowledge what do we need in order to see this happen? Well, we need you to meet our daily needs. Give us today our daily bread. And as we go to the Lord, we also see in that model that we are to recognize our own deficiencies, our own weaknesses. And so we ask the Lord to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, understanding in that that it's not only our sins that are needing to be forgiven, but those of others, that we are meant to live not only in relationship to God, but in relationship to each other. And of course, then we pray that God would grant us victories, victories over His and our enemies, both those enemies that are within, right? Lead us not into temptation, as our own sinful nature within would seek to do that. And, and deliver us victory from the enemies without. Deliver us from the evil one. And of course, the, the ultimate appeal to the end is, how do we have any confidence whatsoever that God can accomplish these things? Well, because to Him belong the kingdom and the power and the glory. So we have this confidence. So this is a great model prayer for us. And I, I remember learning the Lord's Prayer when I was a kid. And thinking, you know, being taught, oh, you should be praying. And so when I would pray, anytime I would pray, I would just repay, recite the Lord's Prayer. And I thought, well, what does it mean to pray? It means you, you, say this, you say this formula. You just repeat this formula. And that's a great thing to do. I don't want to knock that at all. But there's so much more pr about praying than just reciting a formula. The fact that we are invited to address God at all has with it a huge implication Huge implication, meaning we are engaging in a relationship with God. If we're invited to talk to Him, as we read His Word, He's speaking to us, there is a dialogue going on, there is a relationship that exists. And any time you think about a relationship, you engage in all kinds of ways in relationship. Can you imagine with your friend, if every time you wanted to visit your friend, 
the only thing you could say was some formula. I mean, you wouldn't get very far, right? You just wouldn't. A friend is one who is with you in relationship to be familiar with your life and for you to be familiar with their life, for him to enter into your life and for you to enter into his life. That's the idea of a relationship. And so when we think about what does prayer look like, well, if prayer is an indication that we have a relationship with God, and what's that relationship like? Well, it's like a child to a father, so we say our father. Well, what kind of relationship are we ideally meant to have with our father? Because if God presents himself as a father, that teaches us something about that relationship. And I, I know on the earth we all, we're, we're all flawed fathers. And so when you think about your relationship with your dad, I'm sure you can probably think of some good times and some bad times. Some things that were helpful about your relationship and some things that were harmful about your relationship. But the, but the irony is, even if you had a father that you remember more harm than good, you only know that because there is this intuitive sense of what a good father is all about. Right? And a good father is one who encourages you to come with your most basic and simple needs, with whatever you're experiencing, and bring it to him. I mean, I know as a father, I'm a very flawed father, by the way, and I have to apologize to my kids probably a lot by the way I respond to them. But it thrills me to no end when I see them willing to come to me and talk to me about the things they're struggling with. And if I, who am this evil father, am thrilled with that, how much more is our ideal heavenly father eager for us to come with all the things that we're going through in life? And as we get to the Psalms, the Psalms are such a great example of what does it look like to pray? The Psalms are our model because they bring everything before the Lord. Sometimes we are bringing our, our joys and our exuberance before the Lord with these, with these invitations to shout aloud to the God of Jacob, to bring your cymbals and play them and your instruments and, and, and bring praise to God. So there's one aspect of that, but that's not only the, the only kind of prayer we would bring to God. That's the easy one to think of. Well, of course we're supposed to praise God. He's a good, he's a good God. That's what we do when we worship, right? But it is not the only thing we do when we worship. What's so fascinating is we read a psalm like this, it seems like such a downer, and it is <laughs> in some ways a downer, and yet it's written as a song for the congregation as a whole to sing. We realize that there are times when we don't feel like praising God. Sometimes you're just really suffering, and so this prayer gives us permission to be whole people in all the things that we go through, emotionally, mentally, psychologically in life, and bring them to the Lord. If there's one thing that we learn from this song is you have permission to let God see who you are and what you're experiencing in life. Because this psalm shows us a person who is just hurting. And so I would, if I was going to outline the sermon, I would say, weep before the Lord. Moan before the Lord. And then finally make your appeal before the Lord. This psalm gives us permission to see God as a father that we are in relationship with. So in a time of crisis, such as the psalmist is facing here, we see him weeping. I mean, look at the first couple of verses. I find this fascinating. 
It says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the, right, in the, in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. That is not the cry of someone who's in a happy place. I mean, how far do you have to get in the sadness scale before those, those tears become loud, that when you can't keep them inside anymore? I mean, it's easy to walk around feeling sad, to cry to some measure on the inside, and yet let no one else see that. But there comes a point when things are so tough that you can't help but wail loudly. And I think that's where the psalmist is. I cry aloud because I'm hurting so bad, I can't not cry. Some of you may have been there. It's a place like that in your life when all you could do was just weep. Some of you, maybe you've never been there. So you think, well, how does this psalm help me? Well, you might be there one day. And to take note, what the psalmist is telling you. He's saying, I give you permission to weep. It's okay for you to weep before the Lord. To bring the worst pain that you can experience before the Lord. And this is, this is another thing I find that's interesting. It's not that we just have permission to weep because some... We have permission to weep without being consoled. Do you see that at the end of verse 2? In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. My soul refuses to be comforted. Have you ever felt that? You don't want someone to give you some warm, nice platitudes. As true as they might be about how great God is. Oh, don't worry about it. God is sovereign. This is a part of his plan, which is all true. But sometimes that doesn't help. I think sometimes that we are experiencing something that's so heavy that there's just, our, our heart is so full of tears that if we stop too prematurely, then they get stuck in there and the pressure just continues to build. It's as if there's a dam that's been broken and the water needs to spill out. And if you try to plug it too soon... It's going to cause problems. There's an amount of tears that just has to come out before you can hear words of solace and grace again. And what does the, the proverb, the writer of Proverbs says? We see in Proverbs 25, verse 20, he says, Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. In other words, if you see someone that's having the, one of the greatest hard times in their life and you come offer to sing songs of praise, it doesn't have the effect that you're hoping for. I mean, the, the book of Job is, of course, famous. It's the fascinating story when Job goes through all the terrible things that he goes through at the beginning of the book, from losing his family to losing his wealth to losing his health to being cursed by his wife. And then his friends show up, and at first they get it very right because they don't say anything for seven days. Like, they, they got it, but they, they put a time limit on it. Say, so seven days is enough, Job, that's all you get. But in his mind, there was still a lot of tears 
that needed to come out. And it may be that the, the struggle, the difficulty of his friends beginning to speak actually perhaps helped some of those tears come out, we could say. But they didn't, they, they, they didn't want that to happen. They wanted him to just, let's just get things right now. Let's put a time limit on it. What happens if you try too early? Well, kind of brings us to the next point. It's okay to weep. It's also okay to moan. It's okay to moan. I think the psalmist tried to get himself out of it, and he starts to remember. He says, and look at verse 3. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. There's a sense in which, okay, he knows that he's supposed to do these things, so he chooses to do it. And instead of bringing him out of his, his weariness, his sadness, it just drives him deeper into it. I mean, how many times have you thought about how difficult things are, perhaps, at this particular time in your life, and you just reflect back on a better time? I mean, my, my goodness, I can't remember how many parents are always telling their kids, well, in my day, you know, sometimes there was a time when it was my day when things were harder. I had to walk uphill, you know, miles in the snow both ways to school and back. But, but you know, I find myself doing less and less of that kind of talking and just lamenting the fact that, you know, in my day... We went out all summer long, you know, from the time we ate breakfast to the time we came back at dark, and we're just out playing in the woods, untethered from any phones or untethered from social media, untethered from video games, building forts, climbing trees, and riding bicycles, and crashing and burning and helping each other, you know, catching crawdads in the streams, and making our own spears out of, you know, wood as we, as we uh, take our pocket knives and shave them down into a point, and then throw them at each other. <laughs> we, you know, we lament the better days, and when we, sometimes when you go back and you think about the better times, it just makes the difficulties that you're facing now all the harder to imagine. And I think the psalmist has some experience of that. I remember God, when I remember God, the good times, or perhaps when it was in the kingdom of God, maybe when on the time of King David when he had conquered his enemies and he brought security to the kingdom, or the time perhaps under King Solomon, when he reigned with such wisdom and brought justice to the people and such wealth and prosperity for the nation. You know, that, that was a, this heightened time in the, in the history of Israel. And as they look at their situation now, which you wonder, well, what is their situation now? Most likely this psalm is, is following along the heels of some of the other psalms we've looked at when Jerusalem itself fell. Jerusalem is no more. The kingdom seems no more. Our friends and family have been carried into captivity. Our homes have been burned down. I mean, the circumstances are truly terrible. So when I choose to remember God and remember the good times under the kingdom, it just highlights how bad things are now. And so I moan. I moan. And when I meditate, instead of helping me, my spirit just faints. It introduces questions as we see him unfolding in verses 4 through 9. He begins to wonder. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So this is his act of doing that. This is how it happens. And the, and the result is this, these questions. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? 
Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? So the result of remembering God, of singing these songs in the night, of looking back to better times, these are the questions that bring to mind, God, have you failed us? Have you failed us? Now, I, I, I tend to think, you know, this is a song. It's written in retrospect of having experienced this particular experience. It's written for the congregation perhaps to join in together as together they are experiencing these difficult times. But, I, but in reality, I wonder how long went before he had to go from the point of simply bringing brought down and fainting from his, to the point where he can make his appeal. Because we do move to the appeal, and the appeal is an important part of this. But I can't help thinking there was quite a time span that may have existed between his pain and suffering and weariness and weeping and moaning to the place where he's actually able to formulate a real appeal before God. But eventually he does, and how does he do it? Begin to see that in verse 10 and following. Then I said, I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will appeal to the time which God's strength was on display. I mean, in some ways, he's kind of been doing that by singing the songs which are remembering God. So after they bring him to the point of despairing even worse of where he is, he lets them begin to speak some truth. Well, what do I know about the nature of God? If the first remembrance brought these questions to mind, has God actually failed us? What, does the, what do the deeds themselves tell us? And so he goes through them. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And this is what he discovers as he does that. Beginning in verse 13 and following. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, and yet your footprints were unseen. You fed your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So here we have revealed well, what specific incident was he referring to when the, when the right hand, the strength of God, was put on display. It was the great story of the exodus of his people. Now again, this would have been hundreds of years before the psalmist who wrote it happened. So it was, it was ancient history even then. But that story says something about the character and nature of God. It says something that speaks to his current situation. Has God failed us? Well, this is what he finds from that story. You, O God, are holy. You're a holy God. You are the God who works wonders. And you have made known your might among the peoples. With your, you, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So what was that redemption all about? Who were those people? Those people were his, their, his own ancestors. They were people of Israel, but they had been enslaved by Egypt for over 400 years. That means they'd been enslaved for multiple generations. Is that me? You didn't do it. 
I mean, this is generational suffering that's going on. That's what the idea. So if you're that third or fourth generation within that 430-year time span when they're in Egypt, all you know historically in your own life is that you are enslaved, and all your father knew, and all your grandfather knew was enslaved. It was a time of complete hopelessness for the people. They can see no earthly way out because there wasn't one. No earthly way out of this slavery that they experienced to the nation of Egypt. So when God stepped in to do things, He did things that were supernatural. He did things that got the attention of the Israelites and the Egyptians because there's no way any earthly person or experience could explain them. When the plagues came, for example, some of them fell upon everybody. Some of them fell upon only the Egyptians and not the Israelites. Things that are hard to explain, things that they would have expected the Egyptian gods to be able to do themselves. And yet, this God is demonstrating His strength in their language, but yet superior. And then the ultimate rescue, when the angel of death came and took the firstborn, the strength of Egypt, providing a way out for the people of Israel with the slaughtering of the Passover lamb and the painting of the blood over the doorpost so that that angel of death would pass over that household, finally breaking the Pharaoh's resolve and telling him to let to go. And as they do, of course, he hardens his heart one more time, gets his army together, who's left, and they, they pursue them. And God's right-hand strength shows up in a pillar of fire by night to protect them from the people of Egypt, to protect them, give them light and warmth in the desert, a pillar of cloud in the daytime to provide them shade, perhaps from the hot sun in the desert. And then as they come to a place where there seems no escape because there's a sea barring their path, God parts the waters in such a miraculous way that they can march through on dry ground. And as they get through... God brings the waters back, crashing down upon the Egyptian army who has pursued them along that same path, destroying them all right in front of them. That was the redemption, the right-hand strength that they remember. Now, man, this was ancient history even to the people of Israel. But what is it telling them? He's a holy God. He's fully capable in a situation that seems utterly hopeless from an, earth, from a, from a, an earthly perspective to bring rescue. Has His promises failed? Well, if He was willing to do this then, to a people who didn't deserve it, by the way, because they were idolaters too, why would we think He would fail now? And if they had to endure it for 430 years, what's a few years to me? Maybe I won't see it in the next 30 days, 60 days, 70 years. But recounting these deeds, making my appeal, my appeal is to the character of God that He Himself chose to reveal to us in the great story of redemption. That's the appeal of the psalmist, to draw Him out of His weeping and His moaning to a place of hope. You know, when we face hard times, we have this same model to follow in prayer. Don't be ashamed of weeping before God. Don't be afraid of moaning when you recount better days than you're experiencing now. 
But ultimately, you are to make an appeal, and you're to make an appeal to God's great work of redemption. And while in the Old Testament it was the story under Pharaoh, where Moses led the people through, in the New Testament there's one far greater, which is the story of Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate prophet revealing God's Word, just as Moses had done, was the ultimate one leading them through the waters of judgment to the place on the other side where God Himself and His presence is to be found. Because, by the way, that's where the people were going when they fled Egypt. They were going to be brought back to the mountain in which God had met Moses and say, this is where my presence will be made known. And when they got to that mountain, they heard Him speaking, and He revealed Himself, and He entered into a covenant relationship with them. That's the idea. The story of the New Testament is the story of Jesus Christ, who parted the seas of judgment so that He could take us by the hand and lead us through that to the place where God Himself is waiting to hear from us, waiting to relate with us, to know us. So what do we learn from a psalm like this? We learn about prayer. Prayer is telling us that you have a unique relationship with God. He is your Father and He cares. And while it's great to say the Lord's Prayer and to be formulaic and to recall that model, it's also you have permission to reveal all the things that you are going, that you are struggling with, that you are going through in your life. You have permission to weep. You have permission to moan. You have permission to be frustrated, to be angry, even bitter. But don't ever stop there. Form your appeal and appeal to the redemptive work of God. And eventually, Maybe a while, you may have lots of tears you have to get out, but eventually you will find yourself back in a place of hope. For God is far bigger than your personal experiences. I know that's sometimes easy for us to forget. You know, I heard someone once tell me recently, well, I haven't seen God answer any of my prayers, therefore I don't think He does. It's like, well, there's a lot more experiences of God than just yours. That is to discount all the other experiences that all the other people in history have had, including these ancient stories that we reflect upon. So let's just be grateful that we have a God who did not withhold His own Son, but sent Him to die in our place so that that barrier, those waters that need to be parted, could be parted, and we might know Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that we have recorded in the book of Psalms, in the Bible itself, the whole gamut of human experience to show us how do we deal with that with relation to you? How do we face that? How do we come forward with that? How do we wrestle through that? And you show us that ultimately we have hope because you have redeemed us. Lord, I pray that you would help those who may be suffering now and for those who may suffer in the future, that you would remind us of these great truths. In Jesus' name, amen.